This morning we'll be back in Genesis, our study God and man, as we've been looking, obviously, at the relationship of God and people in Genesis and really in, in reality. It's not just, again, it's not just a story that we're reading or even, I don't know what to say, but other than it's really God and it's really people. And I think the Lord wants us to see that he is truly interested in us just as much as he's interested as the people uh, in here. Although they do have a special place in history, doesn't mean that God loves us any different. Uh, we're going to be picking up in Genesis 42, verse 25. And the title of this morning's message is, Their Hearts Failed Them. Their Hearts Failed Them. And we couldn't make it through the whole chapter last time, so hopefully we can finish the rest of the chapter this morning. But previously, as we've seen in Genesis, we've seen that Joseph had two dreams. If you remember, the sheaves of wheat. Uh, of his brothers bowed down to his sheave of wheat, and that the sun, moon, and stars bowed down to him as well. Uh, you know that that meant his brothers that one day would bow down to him for wheat, which we saw last week, and also his father and mother would bow down to him as well, his family, whole family would. But his brothers hated him when he was younger. They plotted to kill him. Uh, Reuben tried to save him out of the pit, uh, but they end up being sold by Judah to uh, a tribe of Ishmaelites, who traders who brought him down to Egypt and sold him to Potiphar, where he served him, was in prison, and came out to serve Pharaoh, and ended up interpreting Pharaoh's dreams as well. We saw that years, seven years of plenty came on the land, and because God had warned them in a dream about the seven years of famine to follow, that they were able to save up all this wheat, and that Egypt uh, was spared from the famine. And in fact, they had so much they were able to then provide for the rest of the world at the time. We saw that after Joseph interpreted the dreams, Pharaoh gave him a wife. So Joseph is fully part of Egyptian culture now. Uh, he has two sons named Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, I just wanted to revisit their names, meaning Manasseh means causing to forget. And it says that, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. That with these kids, God blessed Joseph. Joseph has seen, wow, I've been through so much trouble. And now look where God has brought me. He has placed me second in command of basically the world. And Ephraim was a double ash heap. Uh, it means I shall be doubly fruitful, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. The place where he was brought, where he thought he was going to be a slave and probably die a slave and have an awful life. Yeah, he went through some hard times, uh, you know, maybe about a decade or so. But then God lifted him up. That not only this place was no longer a place of slavery, but it was of immense blessing that he could never could have dreamed of. I mean, who, who would have thought this little shepherd boy would ever be in Egypt, let alone second in charge of all of Egypt as a man. But the famine was severe. We saw last time that the brothers were standing around and Jacob tells them basically, go down to Egypt, we're dying. Get by, get wheat. They met Joseph there. They bowed down to him, as we saw. They didn't recognize him. But Joseph recognized them. You know, these guys hadn't changed much, and he recognized his brothers. But Joseph, being in Egypt, being in charge, looked completely different. And who would have thought, oh, why would they ever think that that was Joseph? Even if he looked like Joseph, I think because of the circumstances, there's no way they would have recognized him. But they put him, he put them in prison for three days. Uh, he was trying to test them and see whether they had been different. They uh, said, bring Benjamin to me. He wanted to see his brother. But they had to keep Simeon there. Simeon was left behind in jail, but they were to come back with Benjamin if they wanted to save Simeon. So this was a big test. Joseph wanted to see what his brothers were made of, and could they, again, have a relationship again? But as we start, uh, you know, the usual few questions. Does your life make sense right now? Is it confusing? 
is everything in order? I love to put things in order. And it's frustrating when I can't put things in order. You know, my boss and I were having a conversation at work the other day about, you know, we're trying to reorganize part of this website that we work on, trying to, you know, the client wants a quick fix. And yeah, we'll do the quick fix, but we really want to come back with a recommendation. Like, not just because we want the work, because it's good to have the work, but really we see this thing that's so important to you that we want to organize it and to not be able to organize it and have to go through rounds of revision and, and approval is sometimes kind of frustrating. Uh, but does your life make sense? Does it feel like maybe your past has caught up to you, good or bad? Maybe you've invested in the stock market and you've got some dividend or some return on that. Maybe you've planted something. Maybe you've invested something uh, in a home, in a garden, and now it's bearing fruit. Or maybe it's something bad. Maybe it's something you thought you got away with and it's caught up to you. Exodus 25 through 6 says, You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You know, I've been hearing a lot about paying people back for things that were done to their ancestors. Well, I'm not sure that I did anything, and I'm not sure that anything was done to them, so why does it have to be paid back? It's a deeper conversation. But when we talk about sin, is that we don't have to pay for generational sin. Something that our parents or our ancestors did sin-wise, we don't have to pay for it. It doesn't have to be revisited on our life, although the Bible says that that will happen. But the key is to who? To those who don't love God, who haven't received the cross. Because we might be living in the consequence of that. Or in a sense, maybe even have a genetic disposition. Maybe alcoholism runs in your family and you're under that. But when you come to Jesus, when you're set free of the cross, all this stuff goes by the wayside. That there's mercy to thousands when we obey God, when we follow God. The things that held me down, the, the patterns of life that I might even learn from my parents, good or bad, I'm free of now. And I can be free of now. I don't have to listen to them anymore. Not necessarily my parents, but to the, the things that might entrap me. But in life and in whatever you're going through, do you feel like there's no right answer? Have you ever been in that place where there's just so much going on, so many problems, sort of you're, uh, you're in trouble if you do and you're in trouble if you don't. That no matter what you choose or what you do and whatever decision you have to make, it's just the lesser of two evils. A lot of people don't vote because they feel that way. I'm like, well, <laughs> sometimes there is a lesser of two evils and sometimes there's something that's clearly evil and not. But if you're in that position, if you're feeling that way, I've been there. I felt trapped before. Know that God is a God of mercy and grace and truth. Now, he will set you through. He says, he says that there's always, he always makes a way out of sin. But more than that, if you're stuck in a tough time, a tough decision, God cares about that. And God wants to get you through it. And perhaps God is trying to even teach you and show you something through it. It says in Hebrews about, about even Jesus learning obedience through the trials he went through. So if Jesus had to learn it in a sense, don't we? But this morning, Lord, we do ask that you would help us learn obedience, that God, the questions we have, the troubles we're in, or even the windfalls we're having, God, I pray that you would help us through them, not to look to them, but to look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. We love you, God. Speak to us as only you can this morning. In Jesus' name, bless all who are listening. Amen. So Genesis 42, we'll pick it up 
uh, in the 25th verse. And we're going to take the remaining verses here of this chapter in tiny chunks. Uh, so bear with me with that. But let's read 25 and 26 together. And it says, Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. So we see that Joseph does three things. Number one, he fills all of their sacks with grain. So although he put them in prison, although he's holding their brother, although he's accusing them, he doesn't hold back. He fills up their, their sacks to the very brim that everything that they needed, that all their jars that they brought, you remember the prophet and the widow, and she used to get all her jars and borrow jars, whatever she had, that whatever they brought, they filled. I wonder if they're thinking, maybe I should have brought more bags with me. Maybe I should have brought more boxes. But number two, he gives them their money back. He made the grain free. That Even though they came all the way down there, and I'm sure they had to pay a pretty penny for it, he didn't take their money. He did this on purpose, as we'll see, I think, for a few reasons later. But he gave them everything they needed for free. Everything that they asked for, he gave them. And it didn't cost them a thing. I mean, it'll cost them nothing coming back for their brother, really. But it cost them their brother if they don't come back. But number three, he also gave them food and anything else they needed for their journey. He gave them provisions. Imagine, remember, we talked, this is sort of like the Dust Bowl going from Oklahoma to California. He had to go a long way. In famine. That's a long journey. You know, uh, I don't know if you've ever taken a long journey, but we've driven across the country a couple times. Um, but think about the cost in gas money, the cost in tolls, in food. You know, maybe they need another sweatshirt or something for the trip, but he provided it for them. Uh, maybe, you know, even new shoes. Maybe their sandals were out. They were walking. They had donkeys. The donkeys were kind of loaded, and they probably walked with it. That reminds me of Deuteronomy 29.5 when God says, And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness, speaking of Israel. He says, Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. That although they wandered, although they were wandering from disobedience and unbelief, God took care of them. And they had everything they needed. Again, I'm sure this isn't what Joseph did for everyone. Come get your grain and don't have to pay. And I'm going to give you food and clothes for your journey back. I don't think so. And it makes me wonder what the people under him thought. Why is Joseph doing it for these guys? Why did he go away? Was, was he weeping? Was he crying? His little Egyptian eye makeup was messed up when he came back out. But he did it. He loved his brothers. Despite what they did to him. In his position of power again, he didn't abuse it. He used it to bless and these men, these brothers of Joseph, they loaded their donkeys, but they didn't know about the money yet. They just got their stuff back. They gave the money before, and they got the sack back. They thought it was a trade. They put it on their donkeys. They left Simeon there, and they headed back home to Canaan, to Jacob, their father. But I wonder what they thought about the provisions for their journey. I wonder if they thought anything of it, that we got this wheat, but we also have some, you know, some Cheetos and some Twizzlers for the car ride back. I wonder if they thought about that. Maybe they were a little too distracted by everything else that was going on to really pay attention to the details. I think that happens to us. Don't we miss the details in life? And maybe the little things that God is doing is we're so distracted with a, a bigger burden. But did it not seem odd to them that this was happening? I know they thought that overall that, you know, them being in prison and their brother staying behind was because of their past sin catching up to them. But I wonder if they thought, why now? Of all the times, why now? I know they had heavy guilt 
But I wonder if any of them even prayed. It doesn't say that they did, but it doesn't mean that necessarily one or two of them did it. I wonder if any of them, if any of them had prayed, what God would have showed them. I wonder if one of them sat down and repented and prayed before the Lord and said, God, what is going on? I wonder if God would have showed them it's your brother. Remember Joseph? I think sometimes the Lord will do that to us. He'll give us that word of wisdom and insight into a situation that makes no sense. Because sometimes spiritual confusion and blindness is simply because we haven't turned to God yet. Perhaps there's some past sin, past guilt, shame, even a debt is clouding our vision and causing us to even to make bad, poor, or simply misguided decisions to just not be honest. These men claim to be honest men, but man, sometimes it causes us to make dishonest decisions. You know, even before getting ready to buy a house, we had to deal with some past debt, even though I believe it was unrighteous debt and it was put on us unfairly and unjustly against the contract, but I don't have money to hire a lawyer. I, I had to take care of it. I think the Lord worked it out that we took care of it, and then a couple months later we found out we'd be buying a house. And How much more complicated would it have been if it wasn't taken care of and perhaps uh, wouldn't have been able to get the loan and all those things. But I just want to read a devotional, and I know this will probably make us go long. But I want to read this devotional. That was good. It's from Upmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. It's from the other day, the 14th. It says, Arguments or Obedience. In verses 2 Corinthians 11.3, it says, The simplicity that is in Christ. Simplicity is the secret to seeing things clearly. A saint does not think clearly until a long time passes, but a saint ought to see clearly without any difficulty. You cannot think through spiritual confusion to make things clear. And I've been there. Been in spiritual confusion, trying to think it through, trying to figure it out, trying to make a list, trying to weigh it out. What's better? Is this better? Is that better? Is this better? And no matter what you do, no matter how good the spreadsheet is, no how many times you talk about it, it's not going to make sense. You cannot think through spiritual confusion to make things clear. To make things clear, you must obey. In intellectual matters, you can think things out, but in spiritual matters, you will only think yourself into further wandering thoughts and more confusion. If there is something in your life upon which God has put his pressure, then obey him in that matter. Bring all your arguments and every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ regarding the matter, and everything, you'll, everything will become as clear as daylight to you. 2 Corinthians 10.5 Your reasoning capacity will come later, but reasoning is not how we see, and don't we try and see through logic and reasoning in our world today. We see like children, and when we try to be wise, we see nothing, Matthew eleven twenty five. Even the very smallest thing that we allow in our lives that is not under the control of the Holy Spirit is completely sufficient uh, to account for spiritual confusion. And spending all of our time thinking about it will still never make it clear. Spiritual confusion can only be conquered through obedience. As soon as we obey, we have discernment. This is humiliating because when we are confused, we know that the reason lies in the state of our mind, but when our natural power of sight is, is devoted and submitted in obedience to the Holy Spirit, it becomes the very power by which we perceive God's will and our entire life is kept in simplicity. That man, when we're confused, we don't know what to do. Perhaps it's as simple as we just need to go back and obey. Verse 27. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money. And there it was in the mouth of his sack. And so he said to his brothers, my money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God 
has done to us. So they get to an encampment. They've been traveling for a while. I don't know how far they were, but they're at one place as a place to stop for the night. You know, they need to feed their animals. They need to take a rest. They camp overnight, have some dinner, and get ready to get back on the road in the morning. Have you ever been there traveling? Traveling, it's hot. You've been traveling all day. You're tired. You just want to get to the hotel. You get there. You're setting up a few things for the night. You pop open the trunk, and there on top of your luggage is the money that you're supposed to pay the Egyptians with. That's what he does. He gets out the grain to feed his donkey, opens the sack, and right there, as soon as he whoop, opens up that duffel, there is the money staring him in the face. Would your heart not freeze? Would you not panic? Imagine if it was a piece of contraband. You had something that was illegal in that state in your car. I don't know why you have that. But I get the sense that that's the sort of panic and fear. <gasps> if they catch me with this, they know I haven't paid. We're not that far. They could catch up with us. They have chariots. They have our brother. We go back. What's going to happen? Would you not panic? Especially after all that happened down there. They didn't have exactly have a smooth time buying the grain. The, most power, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt has accused you of being a spy. And now in your mind and in his mind, you haven't paid him. You've stolen from him. He's put you in jail for three days already. You didn't do anything. Are you being set up? Was it a mistake? What's going to happen? And it seems that this brother, we're not giving his name, didn't even touch the money. Opens it up. <gasps> and he gets his brother. He says, my money, guys, 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 my money. It's in my sack. It's in there. I don't even want to go near it again. This word restored means to bring back, repair, turn, come back of human relations. That his money was restored to him. I believe Joseph was trying to restore a relationship with his brothers by putting their money back in their sack. No, no, no. You don't need to pay me, brother. You know, what's, what's a few hundred shekels between friends, right, Abraham? But he wasn't the one that owed them. Was Joseph in debt to them? No, they owed him. And there's nothing that they could pay him back to ever make up for what they did to him. You know, mercy is not getting what you deserve as far as punishment. Oh, judge, have mercy on me. Don't give me this ticket or whatever you're there for. But grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's giving you a good thing when you deserve nothing. And that's what this is here. It's mercy and it's grace. And Joseph, I believe, like the Lord, was pursuing his brothers, wanting to bless them, loving them. He didn't want them to starve. Of course not. But he didn't also want them to pay for that food either. He wanted to provide for them. He was in a position to provide for them. I have everything you need. Egypt is, Egypt is plenty rich. Trust me, I can give you this free sample. Like when I went to KFC the other night, because I was hungry late at night, I didn't really eat too much dinner. And I went over there, and apparently they had a really busy hour and a half. And they gave me a free cookie because they said I was nice. And all I did was ask them a few questions and say, okay, thank you, you know, about what I wanted to eat. But they gave me a free cookie because everyone else had been so mean to them. He wanted to use that power to bless them. Romans 5, 6, and 8 says, For when we are still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. That when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die for the good people. He died there for the bad people who were even nailing him there. 
And it goes on, it says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That when I was a sinner, God loved me. That Jesus died on the cross, knowing 2,000 years later, I would do the things I would do. And 1 John 4, 19 says, We love him because he first loved us. Christian, if we love God, it's only because God loved us first. It's not because we're good in our own merit. And perhaps that's why people think that they can't come to God. They feel like they, maybe they have to have some love for him first. But man, when they find out their, his love for them, hopefully it elicits only one response. Luke 16, 9, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting home. That God says, be wise, man. Use your money to bless others, to maybe even bring others to him. And you know, we owe Jesus more than everything. Just like his brothers owed Joseph more than everything they had. And Jesus died for us. He loved us, and he reached out to us first to make amends. He was the one that reached out to us. If you and I are honest, and we think about how we came to know the Lord, or maybe you don't know the Lord, and you're seeking him, know that it's him seeking you. And you and I, in our own strength, <laughs> sought out sin, sought out pleasure in our own flesh. And all the while, God was like, no, come to me. That's wrong. That's killing you. Please look at the cross. But when we're wronged, is this our attitude? I'm going to say no. Uh, especially with family. Maybe you're Christian enough to get cut off on the, on the highway or in line. And God bless you. Hopefully you say it from the inside. Maybe. But when it comes to family, I don't know. We should be, though. You know, this is only going to happen if we've already forgiven them. If we love them. If we see our true state before God and realize that we're nothing before God and they need the Lord just as much as we do, we're going to seek peace with them. We're going to seek restoration with them. may not happen. It may take a while. They may throw stones. But it should be our heart's desire. It's for their restoration with God and their restoration with us. Because God wants to restore families, as we'll find out in the remainder of Genesis. And as believers, we need to seek the restoration of our families, no matter how destroyed, no matter how dysfunctional they are or they seem to be, and no matter how hopeless it may get. We need to lead them to Jesus and to lead them to fix him to fix our relationships. Matthew 19:26. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That we can sometimes can't fix relationships. We, in our own ways, there's no way to fix it. It's even crossed the point of no return. There's been a divorce. There's been a, a split. There's been a loss of contact. But no, in the most ideal way, God wants it to be restored. It's almost like marriage. God says, only for the hardness of hearts that I've allowed you to have a written divorce. That even in an awful thing like adultery, God can fix that. God is able to. God is willing to. And it can be done. But God says, I know that this sort of thing could really harden your heart. And sometimes it's too hard for you to come back from. And in that case, I'll give you divorce. But in everything else, you don't really have an excuse. I mean, there's other things like abuse and other things we can talk about. But even then, you know, God can fix that. God can change a man or a woman. Because what God brings together, let man not separate. It says, And then their hearts failed them, 
and they were afraid. The brother came over, pointed out the money in the sack, and their hearts failed them. Their inner man, their mind, their will, their understanding, their heart, their soul, their thinking, their determination, their conscience, and their courage all dropped out. All fell apart. They had not a leg to stand on anymore. And this word fear is to tremble, to quake, to be startled, to be terrified, to be anxious. And God says be anxious about nothing but by all things in prayer and supplication, right? But they realized they were in trouble. That they've got no way out now. They might have gotten out before. There's no way out now. And the fear and the dread and panic they must have felt. Can you imagine? It's getting dark. What? Oh, what? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Simeon's back there. You ain't getting him out now. But it is interesting that this is how they're looking at it. But they see this thing, this money in their sack, as something to be feared and dreadful of. What is God doing to us? Oh, our sin has come back to get us. God is going to punish us now even worse than the things we did to Joseph. I believe because they still haven't dealt with their sin. They haven't been restored yet. And instead of seeing it as a blessing, they see it as something to be dreadfully frightened of. And I believe this is why some people hate the cross, are afraid of God, the Bible, Christians, the church even. Because they don't know how to handle such a blessing. They don't think that this thing coming into their lives, this believer, this word of God, this truth, or even this trial is there to bless them. They see it as just evidence of their damnation and judgment to come. That God, despite all that they are and all that they have done, even if it was just something in the past, something in college even, would love them, would want to bless them, would want to be kind to them and care for their every need. No, 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 that's too good to be true. I'm too horrible of a person. Oh, I can't believe this. Oh, God is judging me. That somehow they know God is real, but they haven't yet come to grasp with the reality that He loves them, no matter what they did. But in some ways for the brothers, it was another test. Would they come back for their brother in the beginning and bring back Benjamin? But now would they come back for their brother and have to be doubly honest does he even know that we have this money? Was it an oversight? Is he going to say that we stole from him now? And he might throw them all in jail now? That they all might be killed? If they go back without Benjamin, they're in trouble. Now if they go back with Benjamin, what's going to happen? To see perhaps how honest they really have become. Because it's one thing to do something because you have to. You know, kids confess because they get caught, or we do, right? But it's another something when you can get away with it. When you don't have to be when you don't have to be completely honest, so to speak. So what is this that God has done to us, they say? Is it interesting that they know God is doing something? Again, they think it's a curse, a punishment for their sin, but in reality, again, it's meant to be a blessing, and it's meant to get them to repent, ultimately that they be restored, not to repent, not to humiliate them. I think a lot of people don't repent because they think it's just for them to be humiliated. And it may be humiliating, but the point of it is to get you a place a blessing and honor and holiness. Because without it, you can't get there. And Romans 2, 4 says, Do you not despise, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? The reason why God is good to us is because he loves us and he is love. 
But he knows that, man, when he is good to us, aren't we going to repent more than if he just holds a bat over our head? Yeah, there is a, a, a state of judgment coming, and that should get us to turn. But before then, God's arms are stretched out in love, saying, Come to me, all you are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Because a lot of times, I believe God will be good to us in order to get us to repent. And that goodness is shown even when he allows hard things to happen to us. Because it is out of his very goodness that he allows these things to happen because he wants us to repent. Because he doesn't want us to face that eternal judgment. The eternal judgment comes that people might repent because it's the last thing because they didn't respond to his goodness. Hopefully as a dad, I, allow, I give my kids chance to repent in goodness. And then when that final, that corporal punishment comes of discipline or taking something away or time out or whatever it is, that they had time first to repent because of my goodness and that even that they might see that hopefully I'm doing it not because I'm angry, but because I want them to be corrected. But these men still have more journeying to do. These ten brothers. I'll bet it was silent. I'll bet it was, they were scared the whole way, full of anxiety, perhaps sweating even out of worry, maybe even biting each other and getting into arguments and panic. And having no rest. So let's pick it up in verse 29. It says, Then they went to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan and told him all that happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. And I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. So they went back to daddy. They went back to Jacob and Canaan. And I believe, and I wonder, in a way, if they had regressed a little bit, that through all this panic and trouble and fear and guilt and shame and their brother being uh, other brother now being in a pit so to speak that they're being brought back to a time when they were younger emotionally spiritually and they needed him to solve their problems you know dad Simeon's not here there's only nine of us here they've grown up I believe but in their heart somehow they're still those young boys in a way scared guilty and need of their father to get them out of trouble but man, if they had only just confessed way back when, what? This was God's plan somehow, that he allowed all this to happen. But they had claimed to Joseph, to the man in Egypt who spoke roughly to them, to be honest men. That they think they'd become honest men in some way, despite the huge lie and deception of their younger years. That somehow their good works might someday outweigh their bad works. And don't the Jewish people believe that today without the temple, that they try and allow their good works outweigh the bad? No matter how good you are, and there are a lot of good people on this earth, it won't even outweigh one sin. Proverbs 26, as we remember it from before, it says, Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? That Man, we try and proclaim we're good. Yeah, I'm better than Hitler. And how could there be a good God if Hitler goes to heaven? I know he did a lot of horrible things, and there's a special place in hell for him. But you and I are equally deserving of death. And that's offensive. But they tell Jacob what happened in Egypt. That they're being honest with their dad now. 
And when they were younger, they fabricated stories. By now, totally open and honest with their dad. And I think that this was one thing that perhaps had to happen. They need to go back and be honest in some way with their dad. But I hope my children will never feel they have to lie to me. I hope and pray that they can and always will be honest with me. And in turn, that I might be able to handle that honesty appropriately. Doesn't mean I'm going to prove what they tell me. But man, I hope that I handle it properly. That they would continue to feel they can be honest with me. Verse 35 says, Then it happened as they emptied their sacks, that surprisingly, each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. Now the rest of the brothers, when they had seen the ones at the rest stop, they didn't open theirs there. I wonder if they had been afraid to look, not wanting to know that. You know, ever get a piece of mail and not want to open it, an email or a text and not want to read it, afraid of what it might say or what it might be, a bill, a rejection letter, bad news. You know, you emailed somebody something that was you, had, you felt like you had to do, but you don't really want to deal with their response right now. Maybe you've got too many other things going on. But maybe this return money had settled to the bottom of their bags by this time. They poured it out, and last thing to drop out is the money. You know, ever have a cereal box with a prize at the bottom? Oh, you know, as a kid, you want to dump out the whole bowl, stuff your hand in there, move it all around, and find the toy at the bottom. Um, I think each of these guys, as one brother began to find something and puts it in my bag, and then, oh, please don't let there be anything in here, and then they open it up, and out comes the money, and then they all do that. But none of them was happy to find this prize. And one by one, they scramble and their money comes out. And when they and their father saw it, they were afraid. This word of fear is to be made afraid or terrified. To stand in awe, fear, reverence, be dreadful. And I guess the sense that they were afraid and anxious before, obviously, but now being home, the whole family there, and every one of them has the money, that fear was complete terror. They were anxious before, but now there was no way out. They were all potentially accountable to the ruler in Egypt. You know, Joseph's dreams, his brothers would bow down, and his parents as well. Verse 36 says, And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. And then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, oh, oh sorry, hold on. I, really, I remember before I didn't want to go that far, but I guess I we're going that far, so sorry. Verse 37. And Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you. For his brother Joseph is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall Benjamin along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Jacob says to his sons, You have bereaved me. This word bereaved is to make childless or even to miscarry. I've lost my kids because of you. Joseph died when you guys were out there. Simeon's stuck in Egypt, and how are we going to get him back now? There's no way I'm giving you Benjamin to take with you. What you guys do, my other sons, is you breed me. 
Joseph and Benjamin have given me joy my whole life, but you guys have given me nothing but problems. In fact, you've taken my other sons away. The only sons that give me joy, you're taken away. And where it is snatched. I can't imagine the feeling of losing a child because of someone else. I can't comprehend it in that way, the thought of someone else coming and taking my child. Whether it's death or kidnapping or whatever. And I'm not trying to belittle it. I think that, you know, it's obviously horrible and we need to do everything to prevent these things. But I think a lot of decisions we're making in this country as a people, some of which perhaps because of the loss of children or the fear of losing them, has left our judgment severely clouded. That in our bereavement, amidst the tears and the panic and the fear, without turning to God, we are turning to solutions that are distorted because of our vision. Just like Joseph's brothers were interpreting why things happen and how they happen and what the solution is, all wrong. We're thinking that the problem is one thing when it's truly another, and we're thinking that the solution is another thing, but it's completely different altogether. And at the root, we're thinking that the problem is physical, some law, something we've allowed to happen when it's truly spiritual and moral. Luke 21, 25-28 says, And there will be signs in the sun, and the moon, and the stars, and the earth, distresses of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and glory. And Jesus says, Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. That man... When these things happen on the earth, people are not looking up. It's meant to get them to look up. And their hearts fail them from fear. You know, my wife and I were talking the other night about the mark of the beast and revelation. Man, people, when these things begin to happen, people are going to want to take it. People are going to want to be totally tracked. And even look at the world now. We don't care about privacy if it means that we catch a terrorist, so to speak. But look how we're even redefining terrorism. But as believers, when we see these things happen, we have a different perspective. We're not under the weight of sin. We're not under the sway of the wicked one. But we can look up. That just like Joseph's brothers weren't looking in the right place, weren't looking to the author and finisher of their faith, but we can look up and say that redemption draws nigh when these things begin to happen. And like Reuben, we propose awful solutions. Two wrongs don't make a right, right? But Reuben says, Dad, I, if we don't bring them back, then we'll kill my two sons. We'll put my two sons in the place that I am so serious about this that I'm willing to bet my son's lives on it, so to speak. That there's no way I'm not coming back without Simeon. There's no way I'm not coming back without Benjamin. So you can guarantee that if that were the case, that I'm willing to bet my son's lives on it. And I get his resolve. I get that he fully intends to bring them all back. That he's finally taking responsibility as the eldest brother. That he's not going to let anything happen to them. He's finally stepping up to the plate, so to speak. But truly, what really is in his power to do against the second of charge in all of Egypt? If Joseph says, no, you ain't getting Simeon back, what's Reuben going to do? Reuben doesn't have the second amendment. Reuben can't fight back against an oppressive government. But truly, what can he do? What can he do against Joseph in the power of all of Egypt? Nothing. If he goes there and Joseph wants to take Benjamin and Joseph wants to keep Simeon and Joseph wants to make them slaves, there's nothing Reuben can do. And Reuben will have to come back and kill his two sons if he's going to be an honest man. 
But is he truly not overcompensating for his guilt? His past sin with Joseph? Is he not trying to make up and prove that he is a different man now to his dad? Like, I'm willing to sacrifice my own sons because I let one of yours be sacrificed? Matthew 5, 7, Jesus says, Let your yes be yes and no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. That man, when we begin to make promises like this, make pledges like this, sign contracts like this, we need to be careful what we promise to do, what we pledge to sacrifice, especially before God. Let your, let your words be few when you come before God. Don't make a hasty vow because it may not be required. Simple obedience and repentance, just like a simple yes or no answer, might be all that it takes. When we begin to go above and beyond in ways like this, it shows that there is something wrong, either in our own hearts, our past, or with the situation itself. But what would Reuben's sons hear? Reuben's sons come out. What, Dad? I don't know how old they are at this point. But how would that affect their relationship with their dad? Their dad is trying so hard to make things up with his dad and with his loss of his brother Joseph. That's now affecting his children. I think this is part of what God means by the sins of the father he visited upon the third and fourth generation. That man, when the dad is not right with God and tries to make up for things in a different way, it affects his children. He says, Dad, trust me, put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Trust me, Father, put him in my hands, put Benjamin in my hands, and I'll bet that Reuben wishes that Joseph had been in, in his hands and never sold, that he went back to that pit with his hands to lift his brother out of that pit, and when he gets there, it's empty. And his brothers are counting sacks of money and laughing as the brother was taken away. And he goes, what did you do? It was too late. And so it's too late here in Jacob's mind as well. And he says, no way. Joseph is dead. I've got no other children from Rachel. He doesn't have any siblings. He's the last one of my beloved Rachel. I'm not going to sacrifice him. There's no hope. Jacob doesn't have hope. He's been broken since Joseph left. I wonder what his relationship with God is like. He says, I couldn't take it. I guess he could deal with losing Simeon. It's no big deal how Simeon stays there. But Benjamin, again, it shows more favoritism still. I think it's still undoubtedly linked to his sorrow of losing Rachel, that maybe Jacob's not over-losing the love of his life. He's not over-losing the firstborn from the love of his life. And he's certainly not going to lose the one that she died in giving birth to. He's clinging too tightly to Benjamin. I wonder if Benjamin could ever leave the house. Or if he had to grow his hair out like Rapunzel. You know, I have to learn, and I'm learning a little bit by little, to let my kids go a little further and further. But it's because I don't want to lose them, and I try and do all I can not to let that happen. But I can't hold on to them too tightly. But I wonder, what are we holding too tightly onto in life? Is it our kids? Is it a job? Is it a dream? Is it a relationship? Is it our past? Whatever it is. You know, I'm looking for a house. I feel like the Lord spoke to me to let go of my father's house. That My whole life, I really kind of wished to get back into that house that I grew up in, even though I knew it never going to happen in my heart. Just wish I could go back there the way things were, and I had to let go of that. What are we afraid of happening or not happening right now? Is there something you think is going to happen that you're so afraid of it or that's not going to happen 
What if this doesn't come through? Are we just misinterpreting what's happening because of some past sin, guilt, etc.? Maybe even none of those things. Maybe we just haven't finished really praying about it. Maybe we just haven't brought it all to the Lord yet. And with that, what is God trying to show us? What is he trying to minister to us in all of this? Because assuredly, in all of these things, he's trying to minister to us. We have to let him know. Who must we pray for and maybe even try to make amends with, even if we weren't the wrongdoer? A lot of times we sit around and wait for someone else to make the first move. But we really need to be that person, even if we didn't do the wrong. Why? Because we love them. And we care more about their relationship than how they've hurt us. And I think if Jacob and his sons, Joseph's brothers, didn't pray, I think they should have prayed something like this. Help us. Oh Lord. Oh Lord, when we're in these trials and troubles, when things that are supposed to be blessings appear to be cursings, when we try and overcompensate and we haven't dealt with the issues in our life, we haven't even just sought you, help us, oh Lord. When we don't know the way out of a situation, it's too hard. Help us, oh God. Help us turn to you in all things. Help us love our children. Help our children not be subject to the sins that we are so easily ensnared by. God, forgive us of those things and help us lead them in the right way. And God, restore our families, restore our relationships. God, would you do that for your glory, God, that you would be lifted up, that we could look back and say, wow, look at how God is magnified in repairing these relationships. Thank you, God, for being a God of love and mercy and grace. And we know that we can't do these things, but God, you can. It's completely possible and, in fact, easy for you to do. So, God, would you be lifted up, God? We trust you and believe you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So may God bless you and keep you, and his face shine upon you.